Welcome to the Battle and the Bride. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, verse 1. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you thanking you for your word. We thank you for your power and for your might. We thank you for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth today. Lord, help me to preach with authority with the words given by God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to learn from this passage what it is that you need us to know in order to live godly lives in this age, in the time that we are given. And I pray that we would be able to do all this to your glory, honor, and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you please be seated? Now, it may just be me. I have heard often when people are trying to sum up the idea of Philippians that it is a book all about uh, suffering. And, um, and maybe that's just me, but as I have studied this book more and more, I have realized that even though Paul does talk about suffering and he talks about rejoicing in suffering and in our trials, I'm beginning to see a pattern here. And it is a pattern of how should I live? It's a book about how to live, a letter about how to live. And how to live as a Christian. So it's not only about rejoicing and suffering, that's there. But it's about living. What does it mean to live like a true Christian? This life is not the end for us. It is not the end for us. Yet while we have it, we must live it for Christ. And in this passage, Paul contrasts two different groups of people. He contrasts the citizens of heaven against the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he does this in order to show the dangers of hell, the ensnarement of the physical world around us, the desires of the flesh. And he does it also to show our hope as Christians, our hope of resurrection, and eternal glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we look through this passage, we're going to see, we're going to focus on four items. In verse 17, we'll see the pattern of Paul. In verses 18 through 19, the enemies of the cross of Christ. 
In verses 20 through 21, he is going to talk about the heavenly hope of the citizen Christian. And finally, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we'll see his exhortation to stand fast in Christ. Now, before we begin in verse 17, we have to look back to verse 16, because he's going to begin discussing his concept of walking in verse 16, when he says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And we discussed last week that that rule, it's the same word for canon, where we get our word for the canon of Scripture. So he's talking about the word of God when we are walking according to this rule. We are walking according to the word of God. But what does it mean to walk? As you say, you know, just get out there and be active. I mean, that's, that's what everyone tells us to do. Just, just move. Just get out there and move. You know, for 60 minutes, do that. I remember growing up, that was a thing. Kids were getting fat, and so they had to tell them to go outside. But that's not what he's talking about when he says walking. He says to walk, he means to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself, how are you to live? You are to live by this rule. So he says, brethren, join in following my example. You're to be an imitator of others, particularly those of Paul, of Timothy, of the other apostles, of the true saints in Christ. The example set down in the Old Testament by the Old Testament saints who trusted in God, who believed in God like Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Join in following my example and note those who so walk, those who also conduct their lives in this way. You have us for a pattern. You can imitate these people. They have the mind of Christ. And this pattern is set down for them to note and note well because when false teachers creep in, and that's how he begins this chapter, a warning against false teachers, they will not fit the pattern. They're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And if those Christians, if they're paying attention to the imitators of Christ who have laid down these rules for them, who have, who have exhorted them, who have planted these churches, if they're paying attention to these saints, looking to them for their example, walking according to their example, having the mind of Christ, they're living the way their lives the way they should, they'll be able to smell a rat. And he gives us an example of what those people are going to look like. In verses 18 through 19, he says, for many walk. Once again, many live their lives, conduct themselves, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. Remember, he says, I, I don't find it tedious to write these things to you again. He's reminding them. He's told them this already. He's either spoken to them about it in person or he has written to them already. But it's a tragedy what he's about to unfold. It is such a tragedy to him that he is weeping about it. He is sorrowful about it. His heart is broken about these circumstances. And what is it? 
There are many who live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say that they are enemies of Christ. He phrases it a very specific way. He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Why does he phrase it that way? Because the cross of Christ is the end of the power of sin. It is an offense. That is where our pride and our self-righteousness are crucified. The cross is the end of the confidence in the flesh. Enemies of the cross of Christ abhor it because they love their sin. They love their self-righteous works. They love the things of the flesh and they cling to those things. It says their end is destruction. Now when he says destruction, he's not talking about annihilation here. This word here, it means the loss of eternal life. It consists of eternal misery, eternal damnation in hell. It is the lot of those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. Their God is not Jesus Christ. It is their belly. When he talks about their God being their belly, he is saying that they are driven by the passions and desires of the flesh. Martin Lloyd-Jones says they don't eat to live, they live to eat. And there's a whole cartoon about that where they, they lampoon this. It's called Over the Hedge. And they talk about in very pithy ways, how these animals see people as, as worshiping food. They have an altar where they pray to food and where they go and work off the food so they can eat more food. And they have television shows about food. And it's all about those things. But it's not just about food that he's talking about here. Food is one example. Gluttony is a sin. But it's those who are overcome by the lusts of the flesh. The pride of life. Whatever it is that catches your eye and you go after it. Those things that are contrary to the will of God. You try and satisfy yourself with these things and you cannot satisfy it. You go after it to gratify the things of the flesh and they are ungratifiable and they just produce in you a continual lust for more. As we see in Romans chapter one, where he talks about these people who are given over to their lusts. It is condemnation for them and it's a judgment of God upon these people. They walk in these ways. They glory in their shame. They boast about them. They make light of them. They go and commit these sins and they talk about them. They laugh about them. They devise plans to figure out how to go and do it some more. They get others to go along with them. 
It's extremely prevalent in our society today. We can point to everything in the pride movement. But what about those people who aren't liberally minded? What about those who are conservatively minded, who deny Christ? Those people who set their minds on the earthly things apart from Christ. They want tradition. They say, oh yes, we want the nuclear family, but they want nothing to do with God. They're in the same lot as these people. They are still enemies of the cross of Christ. He says they set their mind on earthly things. And as we've taught earlier, the mind, when he's talking about the mind here, he's talking about a way of thinking that informs your actions. And so the, what they are thinking about, what they are dwelling upon are not the things of heaven, not the things of God, but the things of self. They're thinking very short term. These people, they think everything that they have right now is perfect. And they want to hold on to those things. They want to grasp them. When we look back at chapter 2, we see the, the exact opposite of the way that the Christian is supposed to think. And we see that exemplified in the pattern set down by Christ, who had the glory that was due him in heaven. And he did not consider it something to grasp onto and to hold onto. Instead, he, he debased himself. He humbled himself and became a servant to die a death on the cross. It, he would have had no sin if he would have stayed in heaven. Now we, we think that we are perfect. In our self-righteous thinking, we have this pride that makes us think, I will grasp onto this thing. I will hold on to this life. I will squeeze everything I can get out of it because this is all that there is. They don't want to change. They are offended by the idea of sin. And they, they laugh at the idea that someone, especially the God of the universe, died for them. It is odious to them. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. What did we read about in Isaiah? He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The sinful desires of the flesh, they only produce anxieties, a lust for more that will not be gratified. To think only of this world and to think only of what we can do to get what we want in this world, it's death. It is death. And Paul's intention is not to leave them thinking like dead people. Christ died that we would die with him and that we may live with him. Paul gives us further clarification in Colossians. I'm a firm believer that he informed the Philippians of these things as well. He goes into more detail in Colossians. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, he said, If then you were raised with Christ... 
seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And this is what we are saved to. Those things that once beset us, the things that we are in bondage to, they have no power over you now if you have died with Christ. He says in Romans 6, sin will no longer reign in your mortal bodies. By Christ, you have the ability, the authority, the power to crucify those things of the flesh which beset you, which make you miserable, which weigh you down, which brings you sorrow. Do not believe the devil who says that you have no hope. Trust in Christ. Cling to Christ. Think on Christ. He died so that the thing that is troubling you now, the thing that has beset you now, those things of the earth which seem to, to have you, they do not have you. He died so that you can crucify them, so that they may die, so they may have no power over you, so that you can live to God. You are an enemy of the cross of Christ when your mind is set on grasping and clutching the things of this world. An enemy of the cross is focused on the sensual and upon the lust of the flesh, upon the pride of life. We, we are to set our minds on Christ, on things above. The things of this world, they stupefy us. But the things above, they are lasting, they are eternal, they are good. And when we focus on the worldly, it creates a continual lust for more, but when you gratify those desires, the flesh just once more, but we have a hope. And he goes on in verse 20 to 21 to contrast those who are, are citizens of heaven and those who are the enemies of the cross. He begins by saying, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship. What does he mean by citizenship? That, that word is conversation. It actually means conversation, but the actual definition of it means a state or commonwealth. We live in the state of Virginia. The state of Virginia has certain laws, certain rules that must be obeyed. They are slightly different from other states. The United States has its own laws and its own rules. If you are born here, you are a natural citizen. You can also immigrate here legally and become a citizen. It's kind of up in the air right now as to how that works. 
But there are rules, there are laws. When you are a citizen, you must obey them. You must adhere to them. We have a citizenship not here, but our citizenship is in heaven. It is in heaven with Christ. Our identity is in Christ. According to Colossians, we died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is in heaven. So when he says, set your mind on heavenly things, we are to set our mind on Christ. We are not to set our mind on earthly things. But he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he said, we are patient. There are trials, there are afflictions, but there is a hope, a hope of resurrection, a hope of the returning of our Savior, but we are a patient people. A Christian is patient. Many of us have had to go through seasons in our lives where the Lord has taught us patience. (laughs) But this is a patience of eternal hope. The Lord works in his own time. The consummation of all things will come at the consummation of all things and not a moment sooner. And so we look forward to those things. And what will happen when Christ returns? He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. What does he mean by this? It will transform us. It means to change the figure of. We will be different. And what will be transformed? Our lowly body. The word lowly there means vile. Our Lord and our Savior and our Messiah is Jesus. The enemies of his cross have only vile, lowly flesh as their God. They are ruled by it. They are dominated by it. Our God Our perfect, holy, sinless God took on lowly flesh to crucify it to the cross on behalf of those who never would and to make for himself a people who are holy because he is holy and righteous because he is righteous. And he will conform us to his glorious body. We get a glimpse of this in the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, they go with him up on the mount. And Jesus is transformed before their eyes. He is glorious. They see him in all of his glory. And beside him are Moses and Elijah. And they are speaking about these things. And Peter is in awe. He says, let's build a tent here. And when Christ is crucified and resurrected, his body is glorified. You see him passing through locked doors and yet also eating with the disciples, ascending into heaven. The Bible tells us that in a moment we will all be changed. We may not all sleep, but we will be changed in an instant. Now when he's talking about Christ's glorious body, he's contrasting that against the enemies of the cross of Christ. They glory in their shame. The vileness of their sins, the lowliness of their body, that's the best that it gets for them. 
That's what they hold on to. That's what they clutch. The Christian, we beat our body into submission. Discipline. Self-mastery. The Christian sets their mind on Christ and says, I will not be overcome by the things of this world. I will not be beset by this sin. They say, I will receive a glorified body. There is something greater. There is something something lasting. There is something eternal. And that body will no longer be burdened by sin. It will no longer be subject to death. It will be a body like Christ's. Isn't that the tremendous glory of the gospel? It's one of them. One of the many blessings is that Christ became flesh, took on sinful flesh, our sinful flesh, to crucify it on the cross. His body was glorified. And so we who have a sinful, debased body will receive a glorified body because of Christ. This life is not the end for us. And how is this going to happen? According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When you see the word working in the New Testament, it's talking about supernatural power. It'll either talk about the supernatural power of God or that of Satan. But in this instance, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus will transform our lowly body. Jesus will conform our body to his glorious body. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. According to the supernatural power of God. We will be transformed. We will be conformed. Jesus, by his omnipotence, will subdue our lowly bodies. And all this by his power, all by his grace, and all to his glory. And that is what leads him to his statement here. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Stand fast in the Lord. In verse 4, verse 1, stand fast in Christ. Now, I know I have talked about my friend Dave uh, in the pulpit in the past. Now, my friend uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, a rare form of stomach and intestinal cancer. And it grew so rapidly and so quickly that the chemotherapy only served to prevent it from growing further. It didn't actually kill off the cancer or anything. It just held it at bay. Uh, But to the point where his stomach, his intestines, all had impassable blockages and they were inoperable. And so for the past several months, he had a choice whether to go on hospice, whether to try another treatment. And they're Christians. They've been clinging to God. And and he said through all this, I'm ready to meet Jesus. Well, about a week ago, a friend invited them to a, an anointing service. They call it a healing service, but they went there and uh, this pastor anointed them, prayed over them, and 
one of the things that he said about the service, they had many great uh, testimonies about the encouraging things that they heard from others there. Uh, but one of the things that he said that God impressed upon him was that he gave him peace. He said, I have been at peace about dying, but not about living. I now have a peace about living. So even with the, the thought of dying, Lord God gave him peace about living up to that point. Now, just a few days ago, they moved his scan up, and he went, they got the scan, and then they got a call, and his cancer is disappearing. And the doctor has said he's seen miracles before, and he confirmed this is the work of God because the chemotherapy wasn't working. Now, they had been taking another supplement, but all of this they attribute to the work of God in their, in their lives to the point where those blockages are completely gone. And so they have hope now. They have hope of remission. Now, why do I share that story in light of this passage? In light of the transforming work of Christ, our lowly sinful body Subject to sin, subject to death, subject to cancer, it will be transformed in an instant when Christ returns. And we get glimpses of that when we see God's healing work in special occasions on people. And I want you, wanted to say that to encourage you, one, because I've talked about him before in the pulpit, two, that I'm, I'm excited. And... You know, praise God for his work and his power that he has over sin, over death, and over sickness. And praise God that we have that same experience to look forward to when Christ returns. Even if we die, when Christ returns at the, tr the trumpet blast, those who are dead in Christ, they will be raised. They will meet him in the sky. They will look upon him. And they will be changed. And so that is why he exhorts these Philippians, these dearly beloved fellow believers in Christ to stand fast. They are going to be surrounded by people who want to lead them astray. They are also going to be discouraged by those that they love who say, I am a Christian and then live contrary to the ways of Christ. Stand fast. And he's... he's he started all of this thought back in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 27. He tells them to stand fast in one spirit. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. When he says stand fast, he is talking about perseverance. Persevere. Persevere in Christ. Persevere in godliness. Live your life to God. Abandon the things of the flesh. Standing fast in Christ, that 
is to persevere in godliness. And what does it look like? It looks like living. Live like a Christian. Do it by faith in Christ. This is not something you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is only by the power of God and that by the faith of hearing the word of God and trusting in Christ for your eternal salvation, trusting that Christ has paid the price for your sins, no matter how miserable or wretched you feel right now, Christ died for your sins that you may live for God, so that you may die with him and be raised with him and live for God. That is having the mind of Christ putting to death the ungodly lusts and desires of the flesh, putting to death the ungodly ways of thinking about yourself. Set your hope and your affection on Jesus Christ. Set your hope upon the glorious promises that are stored up for us in heaven. Don't set your hope on any work you have done or sin you haven't done. It is by Christ's righteousness alone that we are saved. And I'll conclude with this quote from Martin Luther as he preached on this passage. Now this is the situation and there is no alternative. Either suffer hell or regard your human righteousness as loss and filth and endeavor not to be found relying on it at your last hour in the presence of God in judgment, but rather stand in the righteousness of Christ and the garment of Christ's righteousness and reared in him you may in the resurrection from sin and death meet Christ and exclaim, Hail, beloved Lord and Savior, thou who hast redeemed me from the wretched body of sin and death and fashion me like unto thy holy, pure, and glorious body. Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. Live like it and cling to him who has granted you that citizenship, Jesus Christ. And stand fast in him and persevere. This is our hope. And our hope lasts in the eternal son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you people who have been made new by Jesus Christ, by your power and by your will and by your might. Lord, all that we have done is produced wind. We have not produced salvation on our own. We never could. And yet because of you, because of your righteous right arm, you have shown your righteousness, you have worked justice, and your wrath was poured out on your Son on our behalf who died in our stead, but who was raised to life in power so that we who believe in him have that hope that we have died with Christ and we are raised to new life with Christ and we will have everlasting life with Jesus Christ and with you in the presence of our Lord and Savior in heaven for eternity. We will see life. So Lord God, I pray that as we have this hope, you would also help us to live, to live like Christ. And Lord, I pray that this would be manifest in our lives, that you would give us victory over sin, that you would give us boldness to proclaim this gospel, and Lord, that you would give us peace and rest as we rest 
and the thought of Jesus Christ and upon your word. Comfort those who mourn. Safeguard them against the lies of the devil. Convict those who are in sin and restore them to righteousness. Lord God, I pray that you would do all these things to your glory, to your honor and praise, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Battle and the Bride. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. For more information, visit thebattleandthebride.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at thebattleandthebride at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless.